As a famous prophet once said, it's deja vu all over again. This week on The Backdrop. Hey everybody, Curtis here. This is The Backdrop, one of just two more episodes, if you can believe it, in our run through Jeremiah. We are looking at chapters 40 through 45 this week, and then we will finish out the book with chapters 46 to 52 next week. It's more chapters than we have been doing up until now in one go, but these final two sections of the book are largely covering or recovering some familiar territory, as we will see. That final section, which we will look at next week, consists of a whole string of prophecies of destruction, very on brand for Jeremiah, I know, except these are directed at the surrounding nations, literally all (laughs) the surrounding nations. They're fairly repetitive, but we'll take a look at some of the nuances next time. This week, chapters 40 to 45 consist of the events that happened in Jerusalem and then in Egypt and on the road to Egypt in the months immediately following the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon. The judgment Jeremiah had been warning of has come to pass, but not much has changed, it seems. But before we get into all that, let's get a sense of what is going on here. From the archaeological evidence of the time, it seems that the typical practice of Babylon when they needed to conquer a nation, like they have with Judah, was to destroy the capital city, in this case Jerusalem, but not necessarily the surrounding towns and villages. They might destroy important military positions or places that insisted on putting up a fight, but the goal was not to burn the whole nation to the ground. The goal, as makes sense if you think about it, was to have a functioning economy left over that would result in a constant stream of tax and tribute, whether of an agricultural or mineral variety, but coming to fill the coffers of Babylon. And so they would end the royal line of the nation, deport any important people who seemed likely to cause problems or to stir up rebellion uh, so that they could keep a closer eye on them, of course, and then appoint a local leader to get the money trains running again. That leader would take up residence in a town near to where the original capital was and therefore near the corresponding infrastructure that had already been built up and then would govern from there. And that's exactly what we see in chapters 39 to 41. Jerusalem is destroyed. The royal line of David and the centers of power like the temple are ransacked and razed. Several thousand of the aristocracy are exiled to Babylon, but the poor are given land to farm it. And a person from a prominent family whose ancestors we have been tracing over the months as we've gone through this book is appointed governor or maybe king. It's not explicitly said what the title is that Gedaliah is given by Babylon. Gedaliah takes up his role in Mizpah, which was basically a long morning's walk north of Jerusalem. There isn't much evidence that a sizable Babylonian army stayed behind, and he seems to have had some degree of autonomy in this whole process. But this, again, is Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan. The same Shaphan who helped Josiah purge the land of idols. We've met his father and grandfather and cousins and uncles before in this book. And if you remember, his great-great-grandfather was a prominent leader in the time of King Hezekiah. His family has been consistently pro-Babylon ever since there was a Babylon. And he's exactly, therefore, what Nebuchadnezzar would be looking for to keep things running smoothly in this new Babylonian territory. So in chapter 40, verse 7, we see Gedaliah beginning to try and pull the land back together. He offers what is basically an amnesty to the guerrilla fighters who have taken off to the wilderness. These are the officers in the forces in the open country that verse 7 refers to. 
As is probably unsurprising, one of these officers, named Ishmael, is part of the now-deposed royal family. We aren't told if Ishmael is a distant cousin or a nephew of the former king, but he's some minor member of the royal family. The royal family that has now been ended, as King Zedekiah's sons are all dead, and has been replaced, functionally at least, if not in title, by a new king, this Gedaliah who someone like Ishmael would likely see as not just someone sitting on a throne that would rightfully be his, or at least his family's, but also as a traitor who had gone over to the side of the Babylonians and was now collaborating with them. I mentioned this last week more kind of speculatively, but in my research this week, it's made it even more likely. The archaeological evidence seems to suggest that while Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon, much of the land to the north, that is the territory of Benjamin, was not. Mizpah was in that area. Why would that area not have been destroyed? Well, if the tribe of Benjamin had surrendered and collaborated with the invading Babylonians. It seems likely that Jeremiah's people actually ended up listening to his advice in aligning with Babylon, and now they are reaping the rewards at the expense of the established royal family and the established aristocracy. And of course, that doesn't go over well with certain sectors of the remaining society. For some reason, despite the warnings, Gedaliah doesn't see the danger. Whether he's being naive or is trying to strategically unite the country, he invites Ishmael, along with 10 men loyal to Ishmael, which shows how this is just a small band of guerrilla fighters. This is not an army or something like that. But Gedaliah invites Ishmael and friends over for dinner, where he is promptly assassinated, throwing the whole land into chaos. And Ishmael is not portrayed as some sort of righteous freedom fighter here. In fact, in the next story, a group of pilgrims comes from the north, mourning the fall of the temple. And instead of letting them go on by to Jerusalem, Ishmael stops them and murders them for good measure. Except for a few who plead for their lives by saying, hey, I know it's a tough time around Jerusalem. We just happen to know where there are supplies and food hidden out in the wilderness. We we can take you there. We're told this all happened in the seventh month. And while it isn't explicitly said, this group may have been coming to Jerusalem to observe the major Day of Atonement festival, what we call Yom Kippur today. The temple had been destroyed, but they were coming to the site of the temple all the same to worship as best they could, and Ishmael murders them. And these events set off the whole rest of the story. The people are afraid of the retribution that would surely be coming their way for having killed Nebuchadnezzar's appointed representative, and they think the king might not care too much who of these persistently rebellious Judeans were actually involved or not. He might just bring the hammer down again, and they want to make themselves scarce. So they flee towards Egypt. And then someone thinks, hmm, maybe we should see what God thinks about all this. In chapter 41, it tells us that they stop near Bethlehem, which is south of Jerusalem. That is, they've already started the journey to Egypt before they come to Jeremiah. They've kind of made their intentions clear already. Jeremiah, of course, has already told them not to go to Egypt, not to put their trust in military alliances or any other powers other than Yahweh, and his message doesn't change here. What's most interesting about this exchange, I think, is the way that it is written to intentionally call to mind the exodus from Egypt. We've seen the exodus come up before in this book as kind of a framing device to say that the coming return from exile, while it will be 70 years from now, will also be like a new exodus even more wonderful than the last. But these people, in chapters 40 to 45, they aren't interested in trusting Yahweh to bring this new exodus about. Instead, they're going to reverse the exodus, fleeing from the promised land to Egypt. 
And so the people in chapter 42, verses 1 to 6, they make a huge show of how they're going to follow every detail of what God says to them. They are so, so committed to Yahweh. They won't ignore a single thing, Jeremiah says, for realsies this time. And may God smite them if they don't do every single thing that God has said to them. Every single one. This is very clearly meant to make us remember passages like Exodus 19. The passage immediately before God gives the people the Ten Commandments, which is Exodus 20. And then starting in chapter 21, more of the law is given to the people. But in Exodus chapter 19, verse 8, it says, All the people answered together and said, Everything that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. Let's just say that didn't happen in Exodus or in Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, in effect, if you go to Egypt looking for peace, what you will find is the sword. He sums it up in verse 19. Don't come to Egypt. And then in chapter 43, the next chapter, verse 7, it says, the people came to Egypt because they didn't listen to Yahweh their God. What has happened here in miniature is the very same story that the whole book of Jeremiah has told. The people committed to following the covenant with Yahweh. They broke that covenant over and over for hundreds of years. God sent prophet after prophet to warn them. They didn't listen. And then destruction finally came. In this chapter, the people swear up and down, making a covenant to listen to Yahweh. The prophet warns them not to go to Egypt, and they do anyway. It's a repeat of their story as the people of God and a reversal of that story. They've gone from God's people back to being slaves in Egypt. Remember that this book is being read not by those in Egypt, but by the exiles in Babylon. And the message is clear for them, too. You aren't out of the woods yet. You can still squander God's blessings. Yes, the destruction has come. God has upended our society in response to our idolatry and injustice. Yet, Yes, that's now over. And God has changed God's stance towards us from judgment to blessing. Yes, God will bring us back from exile in a new exodus. But we can choose to derail that plan, too just like we did before. If we aren't careful, we will fall right back into the patterns that led to our destruction in the first place. See, it's happened with the group that was left behind, and they went off to Egypt, and they won't ever return to the land. Don't make the same mistakes again. Now, it should be said that the Jewish community in Egypt predated this story. There were some Jews already there, and it continued on from that point forward. It's only in recent years, actually, with the rise of fundamentalist Islamic sects to power, that the Egyptian Jewish community is threatened with outright extinction. In the ancient world, the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was used by most Jews in Jesus' day, it was translated by Jewish scholars in Egypt. And a quick side note on the Septuagint, sometimes the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. And then if you were to look up the Old Testament verse, it's pretty different from what the New Testament said it was. That's often because the New Testament is using the Greek Septuagint. And our modern translations are using Hebrew manuscripts, what are called the Masoretic text. They usually are quite similar, but sometimes there are some significant differences. Jeremiah is actually a book with significant differences in the Hebrew Masoretic text and the Greek Septuagint versions, including actually the order of the chapters themselves. Chapters 46 to 52, which come at the end of the Masoretic text, come in the middle of the Septuagint text. Now, rarely does this change the meaning of a verse, but sometimes words are added or missing here and there between the two versions. 
Okay, tangent over. There, there was also a large Jewish population in the Egyptian city of Elephantine that left significant ancient scrolls that have been really valuable for scholars. There's evidence of Jewish mercenary forces in Egypt through the years. What I'm saying is I don't think we should take Jeremiah's words here as literally you will all die any more than he meant that the Babylonians would literally kill every single person, which would be a problem since the rest of this book is happening after the Babylonians didn't kill every single person. But in fact, uh, we can kind of see that this is the case in kind of a funny way, I think, in chapter 44, verse 14, which says, there will be no survivors. No one will return from Egypt except the survivors. (laughs) This is obviously hyperbole. It's exaggeration for rhetorical effect by Jeremiah. What Jeremiah is saying is, you are looking for peace and life in Egypt, but you aren't going to find it. You need to be looking to Yahweh, like I've said so many times before. That's his message when the people come looking for advice before they go to Egypt. And that's the message we get in chapters 43 and 44, when Jeremiah speaks to them in Egypt, to the people who have ignored him and brought Jeremiah along. Poor Jeremiah. He's ignored over and over, has to watch his capital city destroyed because of it, and then even after being vindicated, when everything he says comes to pass, he has to watch again as the people ignore his warnings, flee to Egypt, and he has to come along too. We aren't really told why he has to come along. It's possible he's a prisoner. It's possible he's too old at this point to remain on his own. It's possible he feels that he can do some good amongst this group and trying to encourage some trust in Yahweh amongst him, that his ministry is not over yet. And we can see Jeremiah doing exactly that in chapter 44, where the people defend their worship of what they call the queen of heaven. Meredith talked about this chapter this weekend, but I have a couple quick notes here. No one is entirely sure who the queen of heaven is. It's likely a kind of composite female deity of the Canaanite Asherah and the Egyptian Isis and possibly a few more. Most nations at that time had as two of their premier deities, a male sun god and a female consort to the sun god who was like the moon goddess and it's fairly likely that they aren't worshiping the moon goddess instead of yahweh but rather the people are taking their cues from the surrounding nations worshiping this goddess alongside of yahweh as if she was his consort or wife or some such thing it's likely that josiah stopped the worship of this goddess we're told that he did so and that from the people's perspective everything went downhill from there I mean, have you seen Jerusalem lately? Jeremiah, unsurprisingly, is not on board with this. And he's ignored again. We've said a bunch of times, but it's striking how Jeremiah's decades-long faithfulness is almost entirely unfruitful in contemporary terms. I cannot even imagine, I can't even begin to imagine, the mental, mental strain of all this. To have given his entire life to a project that, by all appearances, was a complete and utter failure. Now, we from a remove of millennia, can see, and in fact, we are enjoying the fruit of Jeremiah's life and ministry. But how discouraging must it have been to be Jeremiah in the moment? And the final chapter for this week is a bit of a corollary to that. Chapter 45 is a postscript from Jeremiah's scribe, Baruch, who likely wrote down most of these words that we're reading at one point or another. Baruch introduces himself and tells us a word that he got from God. It's dated At around the same time as the story in chapter 36, where Baruch writes a scroll that the king then slices up and throws into the fire. And if what I just said about Jeremiah is true, think how much more Baruch would wonder if his own life was a failure. The servant and scribe of a failed prophet. I'm sure Baruch could have gotten much, much better job offers if he had looked. 
In chapter 45, verse 5, God says to Baruch, are you seeking great things for yourself? Don't. It's hard enough to think about being Jeremiah, but Jeremiah at least has a book named after him, a really long book, as we have found out. He is remembered and his words are remembered and will be forever. But Baruch is anonymous. This is about all we know about him. And yet, he kept at it faithfully. And without his faithful, anonymous, thankless work, Jeremiah's words might not have survived at all for us. That's something worth celebrating in a culture, heck, in a Christian culture that adores celebrity. What does a successful pastor or church look like? Many would point to the book deals and giant auditoriums of some. But I wonder how many Baruchs there are out there, faithfully, anonymously, doing the work God has given them to do. Doing work that seems meaningless at the time, but will actually last forever. We'll end things there. Our final Jeremiah Backdrop episode will be coming next week, and we will be finishing up our weekend series this coming Sunday as well with a message about Yahweh, the God of the whole earth. I hope to see you there. Find a link to the Zoom service on our website, pomonavalleychurch.org. We meet at 9 a.m. on Sundays Pacific time. And until then, have a great week. Bye. Bye.